darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Frater Achad, or Charles Stanfeld Jones, was apparently the magical child hinted at in the Book of the Law. But when he flipped the paths of the Tree of Life on their head, he was inevitably courting controversy. To explore this subject, we'll dip into the appendix of his book, QBL, as well as a chapter from his Egyptian Revival. With that will should be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. How are you, Darren? I'm doing well. How are you, Michael? I'm just fine. <laughs> <laughs> so you're uh, finishing up. You you did set up the idea that you were going to school this year. Oh, yeah. I just finished my first year of massage college. Uh, <laughs> and so. <laughs> this sounds like code for something. <laughs> So I keep hearing. Uh, I'm sorry, this is not a, a fresh joke. I <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's 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 great. I feel feel good about having a summer off to just be with my son and kick around and stuff. Um, <laughs> kick around, uh, not your son. <laughs> just kick, just, just kick, to clarify, just kick in my case. Son around. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to come off the wrong way here. Um, yo. We're continuing to push Frederikad up a mountain, <laughs> drop <laughs> drop him at the, just as we think we're finally rounding the crest, then have to climb back down the hill and start again. Uh, I, I had suggested that we do something on the inverse tree of life, and uh, I didn't know where that was, and you, you found it in the appendix to... The, the book that is called QBL, The Bride's Reception. Um, and so we spent a lot of time working on that and ultimately determined that it was unreadable. <laughs> um, so I have, I have lots of notes on it, just mainly complaining about how unreadable it is. And then we've also chosen uh, to supplement it, a slightly more readable chapter from uh, the Egyptian revival. Mm-hmm. Um, uh that also uh, is an attempt to explain a little bit of what he introduced in the other. So, yeah. So in QBL, uh, which is the he's using the letters from the word Kabbalah, uh, is his introductory book on the subject of Kabbalah, where he in the appendix, as you said, he ends up actually just sort of slipping in. He even makes the note that uh, the appendix is based off of. As he's writing the book, I think he gets to the subject of the card, the star, the Trump, the star, Trump number 17. And uh, he ends up having uh, this sudden insight that compels him to suddenly uh, just publish his diaries without any kind of editing. 
<laughs> which is frustrating in my book. Yeah, and without any kind of deeper reflection, he's just kind of smashing things together a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the insight begins with the idea that there was a lightning flash, and this created the Sephiroth of the Tree of Life uh, descending from the heavens from 1 to 10. Mm-hmm. And then the connecting paths of the tree of life that talk about the relationship between those 10 emanations of God uh, were created by a serpent who climbed back up the tree. And so, Akkad became confused about why, if the serpent is ascending the tree, why do the numbers come down from the top? So, the first move was just to flip the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet on their axis um, so that uh, letter number 22 became letter number 1 and letter number 23 became letter number 2 and just see kind of what would happen. And this was pretty neat because it then meant very unlike the traditional sort of Golden Dawn arrangement or the Thelemic arrangement that, that Crowley would sort of devise, which was just a very gentle modification on the GD one. It meant that just by sheer luck, he stumbled upon the idea that, oh, well, if Yesod is the planetary attributions of the moon, then the letter, the Hebrew letter that is associated with the moon, that path connects there. Um, The Hebrew letter that's associated with cancer, which uh, has some lunar attributions as well, that would connect uh, with the moon as well. And there'd be another zodiacal sign which had associations with uh, Mercury, and that would be attributed to a letter that connected with the Sephirot of Hode. It was Mercury. So the, the, the planetary associations of the Hebrew letters seemed to be largely lining up with the planetary associations of the Sephiroth, and that's something that wasn't happening in the previous system. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, that was kind of what was initially neat about it. Yeah, and it is it is pretty neat, and it's a it's an interesting thing to uh, play with, to meditate on, and to potentially explore in a more deep fashion. Um, throughout this appendix, he's adding more entries as he's having further insights, and some of those attributions that he comes up with initially end up changing as he goes along, even to the point where he starts changing letters with trump cards. And then, you know, changing them back and and whatnot, which is frustrating in a book like this. This is one thing if we're, you know, signing on for a diary to read, but it's like for a, for a beginner's introduction to Gabala, it seems like, okay, you know what? This is great. This is your notes to work from, but like, you know, do some editing, put something together and present it in a presentable fashion. I mean, in Akhad's in defense, it is just an appendix, but I, I do sort of agree with you. There's, it's broken into six sections, and in section one, he lays out a good chunk of the system, and then in section two, he changes things that he's laid out in section one, and then elaborates the rest of the system, and then for all the subsequent sections, he makes revisions and revisions and revisions. Mm. And in the back of this... There's diagrams of the two trees compared, and 
the standard tree of life with correspondences versus Ahad's uh, tree of life with correspondences. I don't even think this is the final version. No, by the time accepting he gets to the Egyptian his, revival, yeah, it ends uh, up changing uh, again. Uh, accepting all of the, his revised notes from even just sections five and six of this. This is like, says it's the key to plate four between pages 110 and 111. So it's only, it really is only like <laughs> the middle section that he thinks is workable. So I, this is... Um, my aspiration when we started doing these deep dip episodes was to, because I was inspired by listening to philosophy podcasts and literature podcasts where very clever people were doing close read type of things. And I thought that we could do something like that with, with mm-hmm. Thelema, you know, uh, this quotation we pull out on page six refers back to something that happened on page four and will be elaborated on page seven and sort of we would do the most generous possible reading of whatever piece of text we picked and and sort of follow the lines of the argument and and just at least see what it meant when it was internally consistent Mm -hmm. and that turns out to be impossible with this piece (laughs) because um he doesn't justify anything that he says over and above saying that okay this is cute if i put it here or like explaining his thinking but then doesn't elaborate on the um on the on the, the value of the new association mm-hmm. uh i mean here in section two there's a whole list of quotations from the book of the law He says, uh, for those who are interested in uh, the gradual working out and fulfillment of the prophecies of Libra Legis, uh, you may note the following verses which have a bearing on the matter just disclosed. That is the bearing on the matter of straight inverting the Mm -hmm. Hebrew letters. And so the first quotation, he says, is, I am the hawk-headed lord of silence and strength, and my nemesis shrouds the night blue sky. Hail ye twin warriors about the pillars of the world, for your time is at hand. I am the lord of the double wand of power, the wand of the force of Kafnia. But my left hand is empty, for I have crushed a universe, and not remains. And he elaborates on this by saying, without making comment on this, <laughs> I will quote one or two other verses which seem significant. <laughs> And let's say here, if this be not a right, you confound the space marks saying they are one or saying they are many. If the ritual will not be ever unto me, then expect the direful judgment of Rahor Quit. And I, he says, uh, note the paths between the Sephiroth. Maybe these are the space marks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, if you, but the, the verse seems to say, if you confound them saying they are one or saying they are many, then expect the direful judgment of Rahor Kweet. So this seems to be saying, don't, you know, don't worry <laughs> about the space marks uh, or, or something. But again, he will not elaborate on this at all. Yeah. And my, many of the places where he does elaborate and find some like little gematric proofs, he's just looking for the name Ahad. It's yeah, all it's appeal true. to authority. Like, I've come up with this idea and you should listen to me because... Yeah. I'm the the magical child of Alistair Crowley, and 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 that makes me a person worth listening to. So it, it's very frustrating in that way. Um, he also makes appeals here to other types of appeals to authority, where he'll just like he'll draw oracles, and so here he just pulls a random book off the shelf, uh, the Count of Gabalus. And he says, my eyes caught these words. 
There is above the celestial fire an incorruptible flame, always sparkling, the spring of life, the fountain of all being. There is in God an immense profundity of flame. Nevertheless, the heart should not fear to touch this adorable fire, nor to be touched by it. It will never be consumed by this so sweet fire whose mild and tranquil heat makes the binding, the harmony. Nothing subsists but by this fire, which is God himself. And he en ends the quotation there and says, This set me to thinking that the path of Shin must be the one from Kether to Tefereth without any further shadow of doubt. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, this is not from Liber Al, I should say, not from the Book of the Law or any of Crowley's writings. This is a bibliomancy thing. He just pulled a book off the shelf, opened to a random page, read this thing about how fire is God, and <laughs> and, and that verified that uh, the the um, path from Kether to Tefereth should be the path of, of Shin. So the, these are very, um, uh, very strange proofs. And not really threads we can pull at all in the in the course of a conversation. Yeah, he does make it very difficult. Uh, this is the frustration I have with his diary entry approach because uh, you can't you can't really be sure that you're catching everything because he's not laying everything out. There are some things that are if you if you understand what you're looking for, you can you can figure out what he's getting at and you can figure out where the connections are and that sort of thing. But the fact that he's not like, he's leaving it as opaque as it is, um, clear to him is again, it's a, it's a beginner's book on Kabbalah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> it's not appropriate. Um, there's another one here, another proof he points out, which is just, uh, even more outrageous. Oh, here it is. Good. Uh, last night after the above writing, I was obliged to take a class in the vision and the voice. We studied the ninth, eighth, and seventh eighth years. During this study, many illuminating ideas came to me. One I particularly remember in the seventh eighth year, the five and the six are balanced in the word abrahadabra. Therein is the mystery disclosed, but the key unto this gates, he puts in brackets, daleth, question mark, uh, is the balance of the seventh and the four, and of this thou hast not even the first letter. I remarked to myself how clearly the mystery of five equals six is shown when the chariot is attributed to the path from Yesod to Fereth, as it is in my revised order, but also that Libra, the balance, is now between Netzach and Kesed, the seven and the four. Um, and I, I see now that I'm reading this again out loud what he means because uh, he says uh, the word abrahadabra is balanced by the seven and the four and uh, the, uh, the tarot card attributed to um, Lamad is, uh, is adjustment which shows a pair of balances uh, mm -hmm. like, um, like Libra. Uh, and so, and did he have the chariot in there as well? So that, and so he's, but but he's also made this thing about, said this thing about the chariot, which doesn't seem. I don't see where it refers to the quotation he's given at all. I think it's because he's just making the association that the letter Cheth, when spelt in full, enumerates to four eighteen, which is what Abrahadabra enumerates to. This oh, is what I, I mean. See. It's like you, it's not clear unless you're really digging into the thing. So it's clear to him and it's great as a diary entry where he doesn't have to explain everything, but it's not helpful, you know, in a popular book. Well, so Abrahadabra, the five and the six are balanced by the word Abrahadabra. So his 
Chariot card does not go from the fifth to the sixth Sephiroth. It goes from, uh, oh, maybe it does. This is the problem because he changes the <laughs> yeah. attributions all the time. Initially, the chariot card went from Yesod to Tefereth. And he says here, the mystery of 5-6, which would be the mystery of the initiate mm. in Tefereth. Yeah. Um, and uh, so... Um, so I was imagining that that was what he what he meant. So so there there didn't seem to be any relationship at at all between the his placement of the chariot card and the quotation. And a lot of this stuff will probably prove moot anyway when he ends up with his final uh, set of where he moves a few things around again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, anyway, and and you have to super add things yourself, right? Yeah. Like you're guessing that that's what he means about yeah. the enumerations. Uh, but he says the balance of 418 or something like this is the balance of Abra, of abrahadabra is uh in the seven and the four mm-hmm. and that's libra between the seventh and fourth sephiroth um but abrahadabra doesn't have anything to do with that he's it's like two he's break, taking one thing which is supposed to be consistent and breaking it into two sections and using it to talk about two different things that happen in an opaque way uh, i really think this is that that whole master of the temple thing of like seeing everything as god like every small detail of your daily life is being god communicating directly with your soul uh i think he's taken it to the uh in the way that it's essentially um everything has meaning and everything is communicating some deeper truth to him a lot of the stuff does add up and i could see that a lot of it probably adds up for him but um even if we can't see how it adds up necessarily but it's just kind of okay what's the point (laughs) um part of the reason to look at this is that the famous thing that's talked about at least within the orders and stuff at least what i've been exposed to uh is that fraterachad yeah he showed a promising young student who um did really well up to a certain point uh, but then after taking the oath of the abyss too early in his career he flipped the tree of life upside down which offended crowley and then they never spoke again after that or something like this this is mm-hmm. the, so this uh, one of the narratives this inverse tree of life at least uh, the way i experienced it through rumor and stuff is that this was a was really a, a strong division between Crowley and Achad, which is why I want to kind of read it and read about it, because it, it's it's sort of legendary mm-hmm. um, uh, in legendary and legendarily pro- problematic in the Thelemic community. And, and so I, I thought it would be good to kind of pay a generous, try to do a generous reading of it, you yeah. know, and, and, uh, and, and at least from the appendix to um, QBL, it was incredibly difficult to, to, to do that <laughs> because so little of what is stated is explained uh, yeah. in a meaningful way. Um, but I thought there's, I, I was sending you some quotes that I found from both Crowley and Achad talking about each other in mm-hmm. thinly veiled language. And I, uh, and you, you thought we should maybe read these back and forth to each other because th- this question about whether or not this was the breaking point between yeah. Crowley and Achad, it sheds some light on that to be thinking about this stuff because Achad in the paper Libra 31 that we read says he was kicked out of the OTO shortly before 
Um, did he say that he was kicked out or did he say that he left? He said, it, he, said he was asked to withdraw uh, his help in that area. Gotcha. And uh, Wikipedia tells me that they had a disagreement over finances. Crowley may be accused of embezzling something or directing a large amount of money to a weird place without permission. Um, that uh, that accusation may have been false, it turns out, and the the two of them kind of made up after that happened. I wonder but if that that's, was the... that's the reason he was asked to step down from his mm. position at the OCO. I wonder if OCO. that was the storage of Crowley's books that disappeared and then he accused of having stolen them or something like that. There's that too. You also, in a previous conversation we had, talked about Ahad having a, a mental health crisis and ending mm -hmm. up in prison. And I found an article about that mm. that said uh, what actually happened is that he was wandering the streets in nothing but a raincoat. Yeah. And, uh, and at some point he threw off the raincoat put his arms up to the sky, screaming something like, I have transcended all the veils, mm -hmm. and was arrested for public indecency. <laughs> um, so there are reasons to be suspicious of Ahad that have nothing to do with his Kabbalah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fact, the problems between uh, Hurley and Ahad started long before, you know, 1923, I think, when QBL was published. And they continued to have a relationship after QBL was published, mm -hmm. as evidenced by some correspondence between them so mm -hmm. uh perhaps we can read um yeah i mean some of that there's um i if i understand correctly i think the first thing maybe is worth reading is uh, just that one little quote the first quote from book four uh because ahad refers to that in the uh in his book the anatomy of the body of god where he uh he quotes in Book 4, Part 3, still in manuscript, he says, we may read, An excellent man of great intelligence, a learned Kabbalist, once amazed Frater Perderabo by stating that the Tree of Life was the framework of the universe. It was as if someone had seriously maintained that a cat was a creature constructed by placing the letters C-A-T in that order. It is no wonder that magic has excited the ridicule of the unintelligent, since even its educated students can be guilty of so gross a violation of the first principles of common sense. And so uh, Ahad goes on to say, I may state that I have not the slightest idea who this excellent man was, and that I have a good deal of respect for the opinions of Frater Perurabo, but at the risk of falling under the same stigma as his unknown warrior, I shall break a lance with Frater Perderabo on this point before this treatise is completed. So that's him being cognizant of uh, this reference in the blue brick that uh, Crowley had been planning. I guess it was still in manuscript form, so it hadn't actually been published yet. Well, the big blue brick shows copyright dates for, uh, I think, 1913, 19... 30 and then 1935 um, and so I don't know whether those are copyright dates for separate pieces of material like book four yeah. pub, part one would have been published earlier so this is part three that would be magic and theory and practice which he would have been finishing in the Chefalu period I guess sure um, but the footnote the important footnote that we're going to read now which is a footnote to that exact um, <laughs> that particular that, passage. That particular passage. So the the pa Ahad reads this passage about the Kabbalist who um, thought the tree of life was was the framework upon which the universe actually 
hung. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Crowley's accusation is that this Kabbalist mistook the tree of life for a real material thing. <laughs> the map for the territory. That was the framework of the universe. Um, and, uh, and, and says that that was, that was crazy and that cats aren't made out of, <laughs> the made out C-A-T-S. of the letter C-A-T. Uh, the one describes the other. That doesn't mean it's the found, found it's the skeleton of the other necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless and, you're a medi- medieval uh, philosopher, perhaps. <laughs> and so uh, after, I think, after Crowley reads Achad writing this, saying that, you know, he signs on with the mysterious Kabbalist who made that mistake, Crowley then says, uh, and this is probably why people think that the Tree of Life was the major point of contention between them, because mm-hmm. Crowley approaches this with a lot of vitriol and in a footnote uh to this part of magic and theory and practice he says long since writing the above an even grosser imbecility has been perpetrated one who ought to have known better tried to improve the tree of life by turning the serpent of wisdom upside down yet he could not even make his scheme symmetrical his little remaining good sense revolted at the supreme atrocities Yet he succeeded in reducing the whole magical alphabet to nonsense and showing that he had never understood its real meaning. The absurdity of any such disturbance of arrangement of the paths is evident to any sober student from such examples as the following. Binah, the supernal understanding, is connected with Tefereth, the human consciousness, by Zion, Gemini, the oracles of the gods, or the intuition, that is, the attribution represents a psychological fact. To replace it by the devil is either humor or plain idiocy. Again, the card fortitude, lust, Leo, balances majesty and mercy with strength and severity. What sense is there in putting death, the scorpion, in its stead? There are twenty other mistakes in the new wonderful illuminated from on high attribution that the student can therefore make twenty more laughs if he cares to study it. <laughs> um, and so, of course, this sounds like Crowley's totally outraged by the by the system and, and thinks Akkad's nuts for even approaching it. Mm-hmm. I think probably it's just revenge for <laughs> uh, uh, for being sort of mentioned in the bride's reception that Crowley read his thing in the bride's reception thought, Oh, I'll show this maniac, you know, (laughs) Crowley is, is, uh, playful and, and, and teases people. And sometimes the, well, some, I shouldn't say that because sometimes there's genuine vitriol in the assaults, you know, he's sometimes it's, it's slander and it's slander on purpose. Well, you know, uh, somebody I'd spoken to, I was expressing, this is years back. I was expressing, uh, frustration at A.E. Waits, um, translation of Eliphas Levy, where he's got all these footnotes constantly deriding, uh, Eliphas Levy and, and, uh, belittling him at least that was uh, how it came off and i remember complaining about that and this person was saying that that was a commonplace in in english books where you would have just these kinds of snarky sort of comments and and that sort of thing so it may have been just sort of part and parcel of the climate of the time but then again this was 
one way or the other. This is part of Crowley's mode of expression, not naming names necessarily, unless he's really pissed off at you. <laughs> well, um, but but yeah, I mean, he'll go so far as uh, eulogizing people who aren't dead, accusing people of sodomy, saying they were <laughs> arrested when they weren't arrested. Yeah, um, you know, so it's 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 not just uh, uh, snarky academic banter. It's like. It's 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 intentional premeditated slander. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, Achad gets off pretty light where that's concerned because yeah. he really only attacks the argument and not the man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was 1933, you know, or 1930 or something. About ten years after, eight, seven to ten years after the publication of of QBL. Uh, this that I'm about to read is 1923 in direct response to the publication of QBL. This is from a letter, uh, Crowley to Jones, January 9th, 1923. And uh, is from a, a book by Martin Starr called Wilfred T. Smith and the Thelemites. That's where I got, I got access to the letter from. It says, from what I can see of the appendix generally, it appears to have some very interesting ideas. But I think it is rather a case of rushing into print. The best ideas are none the worse for being allowed to mellow. The real interest in the appendix is that it illustrates your rough working, and if we let it go as that instead of making a dogmatic revolution, it is impossible to take any objection to it. I think you have failed to realize that Athbash is no better and no worse than Temera or any of the other systems. Um, these are different types of... Kabbalistic analysis, different ways of dividing up, turning turning letters into numbers and then cutting up the words. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I dislike about your proposed reversal of the serpent and did dislike about your proposed rearrangement of the Sephiroth is that such changes merely de- upset a meaningless convention. It is therefore a blow of a sword in the water. There is no point in proving that Sunday ought really to be Saturday because humanity has missed a day in, since the days of creation, unless there is a day of creation, and as we know, there isn't. It is much better to support the conventional calendar. I think you could have brought out all the truths of your appendix without upsetting the language. So a couple of criticisms here. The first thing is that it's too fast. It doesn't explain itself. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, too much dogma from rough notes. Like Achad is asserting it as, as the truth, even though he hasn't thought about it himself yet. Right. Yeah. And then support saying some of it seems smart, you know, and as your notes, you know, you're working with notes. It's awesome to publish notes because then we can, you know, you're showing your work. We can see your thinking. Uh then the other criticism is is that you know the tree of life isn't real <laughs> and um it's a convention it's a convention and lots of people have been working with this convention and um so trying to come up with a new arrangement is possible but trying to correct the arrangement is insane yeah looking at this dogmatically yeah is the problem um uh, now this is a little bit weird because crowley makes some corrections after the publication of the book of the law right because daddy is not the star and he figures out how to balance and harmonize things so that the picture looks more elegant mm-hmm. um and so you might say that he's being disingenuous or you know pot calling kettle black because He's saying you can't correct something that doesn't exist, but then he's made his own corrections. But the difference is Crowley thinks what he's done is is make something more elegant. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, and elegance is always an improvement. Um, he he's not saying that he's done something that's more true, except that in the footnote to Liber ABA, he says, you know, this the path of Zion represents a psychological truth where the path of the devil is just a joke. So he's uh-huh. actively saying that one arbitrary system is better and more true than the other. So he yeah. does think there's some truth there at some time. So, Good catch. You that's, know? A bit of a, that's a bit of a potential contradiction that we're looking at there. Right. Um, uh, and as far as it goes, like it, the real point is the fact that um, Ahad is looking at this dogmatically as the correct form of the tree and he is sort of arguing for the idea that there's uh, um, a deeper reality to the tree than just being a map to uh, describe the territory and that sort of thing in lots of places Crowley talks about it as being conventional and something to memorize so that we have a common language mm-hmm. um, uh, the places where he talks about one thing being truer than the other are rare and really just meant to kind of insult and humiliate Ahad, at least the ones we've noticed in this conversation yeah I mean we I, I would immediately compare the idea of the tree of life to something like music theory because that's my sort of go-to place for this kind of thing um, sure it seems like you've got all these rules for music theory uh, you've got you know if you're playing a guitar you've got you know all the frets on the guitar that break up the notes nicely you've got so many keys on the piano that break up the octave nicely uh, but this is Western convention, and there's so many other ways to break up that series, that gradient series of notes or frequencies. Oh, this is great. That's so great, because that's a way in which it can be both arbitrary and correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you see these people advocating uh, soflego frequencies or different kind yeah. of frequencies, you know, quote-unquote, better tunings for the piano. And so I was watching a YouTube video of someone trying to play pieces with these improved tu- <laughs> tunings, <laughs> yeah. and the harmonics don't agree. Yeah. So uh, those are arbitrary and incorrect, while the Western Music Convention is both arbitrary and correct because it expresses the harmony more beautifully. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very good analogy. Yeah, and that's that's the difficulty as we come into this. This is uh, the mental idea of there being a correct sort of conception of things that represents our uh, sort of idea of truth. But our conceptions are just um, utilitarian in order for us to engage with our reality, really. One of the... <laughs> It's funny because um, I, I I do agree with the idea of of um, breaking down things like dogmas, like for instance scientific dogmas, because I think that um, I I am a science person as much as I'm a <laughs> crazy nut job magic person as well. Um, but I think that uh, humans is humans, and we have we have a nasty tendency towards dogma, no matter what we're looking at. So uh, you get. You get people uh, doing science, and they tend towards some kind of dogma with that as well. So I think it's important to be able to break up that kind of dogma. But, uh, like, for instance, I was watching this um, uh, this thing popped up on YouTube for me that was like uh, this band TED Talk. And uh, uh, it was like Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, and he, uh, he initially, the, the thing starts off as all TED Talks. It starts very compelling because it's designed that way. And uh, so he's talking about 
this very subject, the idea of uh, dogmatism in the scientific community. And so he's trying to break that down and demonstrate the fact that there is dogmatism that builds up and it does block us from being able to see outside of the box and being able to see things from different perspectives. The problem comes when he starts using that to inject his own dogma so it's like shoehorning this this idea in where he's talking about and it's an interesting idea but it's it's an idea and it's a speculative idea it's not a scientific idea it's the idea that uh, consciousness exists sort of as waves and it's not confined to the brain so it can somehow affect um, it, things outside of the brain and this sort of thing it's uh, it's pseudoscience. So it's the it's fine for what it is, but I would have liked it a whole lot more if he just stuck to one subject at a time instead of using that as sort of a Trojan horse for getting this idea in there, you know? This seems to be like that type of thing that comes up again and again. You get Graham Hancock uh, with his, his books tend to be presented in that way where it's like, well, first of all, let's learn how to question the conventional sort of way of looking at things and think, well, why is that so dependable and that sort of thing? Why not be able to question things so that we can look at things from a different angle? And now you can start to, you know, buy into my, my wild theory that doesn't really have any hard fact. We see this all the time. I practice radionics. And mm -hmm. we see this all the time in the radionics community because radionics was initially designed to be um, uh, for medical treatment. And it doesn't work. <laughs> and um, a lot of people made a lot of money from, you know, I, I think Abrams was on the up and up. But a lot of people who weren't Abrams mm -hmm. um, uh, were scamming people, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if, if you have cancer surgery and someone chooses not to do cancer surgery and instead chooses to treat with radio waves, then there's an argument to be made that the, the radio wave operator is putting that person's life in danger. Mm -hmm. And so radionics is medical quackery and using ra selling radionics machines in the United States for the purpose of working with human specimens is against the law. Mm. So r people in the radionics community will talk about how big pharma is invested in treatments, not cures because treatments make more money than cures and uh, they don't actually like cures for anything. And, y you know, you can, you can believe that, right? You can point to a very real conflict of interest between their pocketbook and the idea of curing illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but, and then they say, and that's the real reason it's against the law to practice radionics on human beings. Yeah. It, it, two things can be true. There can be a conflict of interest in the pharmaceutical community, and radionics can be quackery. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and those are two completely different conversations, and one has no bearing on the other. Exactly. And if you're saying that that's the real reason that, um, that radionics is illegal in the United States, the claim you're actually making is that radionics is the cure for cancer, which is insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's back um, to that insect thinking that I was referring to in previous <laughs> podcasts. It has to be one thing or the other. It can't be something in between. I wanted to finish this thought, though, that between Crowley's gentle letter to Jones, mm -hmm. uh, where he says, this is what I like about it, this is what I don't like about it, here's some nice advice, and the the more vitriolic response you see in the in in the, the, the footnotes to, post that is <laughs> <laughs> to um, magic and theory and practice. Uh, there's seven to ten years, so it wasn't 
it it wasn't just I read this thing and now I don't like you. And in fact, it's not the only reason to dislike Jones. Mm-hmm. Disla- Jones was, we read in Lieber 31, Jones was lying about his what he thought his attainments were. He thought he was an ipsissimus and was pretending not to be. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he thought he had surpassed Crowley and wasn't making the open claim. He was sort of backroom scheming to kind of overthrow uh, Crowley because, uh, uh, you know, if you don't want to make a direct challenge to your master, that's fine. But then publishing work in which you make an opaque challenge to your master... <laughs> uh, 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 he was, uh, you know, uh, pulling all these psychotic stunts at getting himself arrested at least once, and then stalking Crowley, sold all his possessions and traveled to New York, just showed up at the hotel and be like, hey, we live together now. <laughs> uh, I don't think that Jones, you know, uh, went nuts, turned the f- uh, tree of life upside down, and then Crowley irrationally just like <laughs> overreacted and kicked him out of his life. So Yeah, uh, I mean, it's nice to it's nice to see you were particularly describing Achad as being Hattie in our previous uh, discussion on Libra 31. And this is just further evidence of that kind of disingenuous, um, you know, humility and cattiness in general we're seeing here. Mm, there's one more thing, I think. Oh, uh, here. Just in the preface to the Egyptian revival, uh, where he talks about the appendix to QBL. He says, with my original notes left in their rough form, I published the complete booklet in a limited edition for students of the Kabbalah. So he's explaining why he didn't feel the need to expand it. He just, you know, it's for students of the Kabbalah. Um, It's only published in a limited form. Uh, And I had the notes. So, you know, just package them as an appendix to something else that's, you know, more complete and more elaborate. I didn't see the harm. And he says, uh, since the publication, this has met with very good reception on all parts of the globe, and I have received many encouraging letters, all of which express interest in the revised arrangement. Who knows if that's true? (laughs) (laughs) The press reports have been favorable, and a conservative magazine, The Occult Review, admits the importance of the discovery. Let's, you know, if we were historians, we would look up that review. Uh, (laughs) I just love the idea of a little star on the cover of the magazine saying... We acknowledge the importance of the discovery. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's going on the binding. <laughs> uh, one great authority, however, while admitting that many of the ideas are brilliant, is that what he said in the letter that we wrote? <laughs> many of the ideas are brilliant. In so many words. Uh, says that he cannot accept the Reformed order in the face of several hundred years of the old tradition and maintains that the previous arrangement is the correct one. What he actually says is that the, all arrangements are arbitrary, and there's no reason to change it. <laughs> uh, um, but anyway, this is what Crowley takes. While I realize that great changes in the recognized systems of initiation in certain orders might be necessary if the reformed order of the paths were adopted, and while recognizing the importance of the opinion of the authority mentioned above, I still maintain that this new arrangement is worthy of the most careful consideration and study, and one would expect to find some reason for the arrangements of the paths, and that this present plan seems to me the most reasonable. In fact, it suggests that there was an absolute reason in the primitive universal tradition, though this became lost to view as time went on. My aim is to discover the truth insofar it is possible to man, and to uphold what seems to me the most true until I am convinced of error. 
but change my viewpoint if necessary as soon as more light is given to me. If this new arrangement is correct, it will prove itself to be so in the minds of those who study it in an unabashed manner. Not at bash. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, so this this idea is that I've come up with this thing. I, you know, I've put uh, I I put it out there hastily and without explaining myself. And you know, if it's true, then your you know serious unbiased study will prove it to be true. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If you think that this is important, it's your job to tell me why. I don't have to sit there and study you, for, you know, <laughs> to try to to try to second guess what you're thinking. Yeah, and I mean, if this comes off as kind of a Achad bashing or Charles Stanfield Jones bashing, I do actually uh, really find it interesting, and I want to explore it further. His uh, his arrangement of the Tree of Life and that sort of thing. Um, I actually plan on getting myself a Rider weight deck and. Uh, using the trumps to maybe lay out as a a tree so I can visually meditate on it and that sort of thing to explore it a little bit because I think that might be worth some meditation. And I do think he has a lot of intelligent and insightful ideas. Granted, we do have, um, like in in the uh, introduction to the, uh, actually I guess it's in chapter one, I think, in the Egyptian revival, he's talking about his, um, he's talking about well, why Egypt is suddenly all the rage at the time, because this is the 1920s, uh, when when there was that, they found Tutankhamun's tomb, and so that was just sparked off this whole Egyptian craze. And so he's talking about um, this book called The Coming Forth by Day, which is mainly translations of um, the what we think of as the Egyptian Book of the Dead. But he also makes reference to Gerald Massey and his Book of Beginnings, which is a pseudoscience kind of thing that's like on the on the level with um, what I was talking about with like Graham Hancock, I, I think is a good analogy for that. So this is somebody who's talking about the etymology having evolved from Egypt into Christian language. And uh, it's it looks like nonsense. And Echad is using this as his basis for a lot of his his own etymology and that sort of thing. I mean, for one thing, uh, the big glaring thing that stuck out to me at first, was, and I think I had to message you right away as soon as I read it, was uh, he's referring to Typhon as the uh, mother goddess in Egypt. Typhon is, well, a Greek god. That doesn't mean it's, you know... There's a little bit of crossover there with a, throughout the Mediterranean and whatnot and th- between Greek and Egyptian ideas. But uh, Typhon is a male god with serpents for feet and and uh, is like the father of the giants and this sort of thing or something like that. Um, so how that got confounded in this, this uh, Gerald Massey's Egyptology etymological strain i don't know so um some uh, i want to do a a talk back episode with you fairly just like a check-in episode with you in a little bit Mm -hmm. um, because i've been reading a bunch of stuff about proto-indo-european language and mythology Mm -hmm. um mainly uh watching uh youtube videos and i'll i'll remember the name of the guy before we do our talk back episode but also started listening to an audiobook version of something called something like Horses, Wheels, and Language, which is an attempt to use the reconstructed 
Indo-European language, along with what we know about archaeology, to try and figure out who these people were that spoke the ancestor language of all current mm-hmm. languages uh, across Europe and South Asia and into Russia and places like this. So, and philologists have done a certain amount of work to reconstruct this Proto-European language. They have a, a speakable language. Who knows mm. how accurate it is, but uh, this is, you know, not quackery. This is real <laughs> a, an attempt to do real academic work. And then if there's one group of people, one language group that spoke this coherent language, then the similarities between the stories, you know, from all the way from Ireland to Germany through Ukraine uh, and, and all the way into India and Persia, the similarities in those stories are not uh, because of um, a, a collective unconscious, but because they're creative retellings of an original story told by mm-hmm. Proto-Indo-European people. And so um, you you have myths of twins murdering each other. And Crowley says in the Book of Toth that originally this was the creation myth, and he turns out to be right. The people that study Proto-Indo-European mythology think that the creation myth was a myth of one twin murdering another and creating the universe. And so what Akkad is attempting to do, you know, um, sort of at a time when these ideas were unformed, and what a lot of uh, occultism in this period, I think, is trying to do is find those relationships between between myths. And mm-hmm. uh, he, he even says somewhere here to find the the primordial tree that was lost, the original tree, the truth that, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and of course the tree of life only dates back to like the 1600s or something like <laughs> that. Um, but he, he's imagining something like a proto-Indo-European culture that had a tree of life and that he's trying to reconstruct it. Or um, he probably thinks they're Atlanteans or something like this. Uh, but that's that that's the project of a lot of occultism in this period. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've just kind of discovered that. I'm super turned on about it. Well, that's but, even like I made, I've made a couple of snarky comments about Graham Hancock, and that's like one of the things he talks about, which is like that whole idea. Yeah, well, he thinks that there's there, the problem with conspiracy theorists is that the thing that's useful with conspiracy theory people is that they keep asking the questions. Yeah. And the problem is that they come up with insane answers <laughs> that make the questions seem stupid. You know, Graham Hancock thinks there were Atlanteans. There's another guy whose name I forget now who thought they were aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blavatsky has her thing about root races. You know, because there's something there. Yeah. And uh, and now people we... People can't live without the fact that they don't have an answer and they need, they just need to fill in an answer for it. And now we think, uh, we seem as of, you know, the, the Mid '90s, we seem to think it's these uh, the people of the steppe, these roving horsemen mm-hmm. uh, that that are the, are the real answers. But yeah. um, uh, anyway, so when your mind is swimming with all this stuff, and you're not a clear thinker, as Akkad seems not always to be, then you know he he sort of wants the dragon to have something to do with Eve. Because the serpent has something to do with Eve, and he knows that Typhon is kind of a dragon, and maybe the, and there's um, in the Egyptian mythology there's dragons in the sky, and there's there's snakes under the earth. You know the um, uh, Osiris or somebody like this fights a dragon every night when he uh, is, is it's a shoe or something like this. I can't okay. remember, and so uh, and those those are all male deities. And they're all from a different part of the Proto-European <laughs> Indo-European legend, but he wants them to be Nuit. 
Uh, and so he he's trying to force them into this bina box where they uh, they don't really belong. But I think that I think he's he's seeing that the dragon breathes water in everywhere. The in the revelation, the dragon breathes water. Typhoon is a dragon that breathes water, and so he thinks that the dragon is Babylon breathing mm-hmm. water down from Bina to create the universe. He's wrong, but that's how <laughs> that's how he gets to that association. Um, and if he could, ju- if he would just go and read his Hesiod, he would see that, you know, the the Typhon's a, a male deity, but mm-hmm. uh, and part of the part of the not exactly a Titan, but with the Titans, uh, part of the story of Zeus conquering mm-hmm. Olympus. And I mean, the uh, he quotes heavily from that book, and he, he, there's a bunch of stuff about uh, how the Egyptian these Egyptian ideas evolved into Christianity by way of terms like eu which became in various ways jesus and and Mm. and these types of things so um but uh again it's like i mean i'm no egyptologist but i haven't seen some of these things outside of this specific this very specific uh reference point so i can only assume it's uh garbled nonsense (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't be the first occultist to get distracted by you <laughs> know, something, something that seemed like an, a, a yeah. secret, you know? Yeah, that's, that should be on every occultist's tombstone. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like an interesting secret. <laughs> he says at some point here, you know, the something about the great beast uh, chasing the woman who's clothed with the sun. And it's not the great beast, it's the dragon. Like, he can't even read Revelation. The text is <laughs> readable. Well, he's always, you know, placed where he cannot get at his books or whatnot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Crowley had that problem, too, but he didn't make so many mistakes. I, I shouldn't compare people to Crowley. Crowley's a genius, so... Um, well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of Crowley-isms, or at least attempts at Crowleyism in Nichad, and that's one of the things I was thinking about, too, is that... Uh, I think this happens quite a bit. I think maybe Jack Parsons did something similar as well. There's a little bit of that hero worship thing. That there's an imitation of style and whatnot. And I mean, frankly, I'll uh, I'll imitate the literary style of somebody that I'm reading quite a bit of at the time. You know, just naturally. I think that's just unconscious to some extent. Um, you just happen to be speaking with that voice to some extent, but. Uh, it's not the same. It's not like you're actually getting Crowley because they're imitating Crowley or anything like that. It de- degenerates if it is imitation. Little things like capitalizing all kinds of words that don't necessarily need to be capitalized. <laughs> or <and> all capsing <laughs> words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, incidentally, speaking of which, we had we had touched on um, the word hur, which uh, popped up in Lieber 31, mm-hmm. and uh, I had brought up the fact that it was in all caps, and uh, he was comparing it to, uh, well, I guess Laal, uh, so or Loel, L A A L. Um, so I, I thought that that's what he was trying to get at by mm. having it in all caps. And we did some quick gematria and came up with uh, 345 for Hur, and um, uh, we we didn't really have anything solid at the time. But he does actually specifically mention it in QBL. Mm. So, uh, and he references it to, uh, the 47th problem of Euclid and, uh, the, uh, the squaring secret of masonry. Oh. So it's, it's this type of thing where, uh, you have right triangle, you have one side would be three units, the next larger size would be four units, and then 
the hypotenuse, the, the one joining them, would be five units. So you have three, four, five, and it's uh, apparently really important for building structures when you're an ancient Egyptian, for instance. Oh, okay. Cool. And he's got, it looks like he's got the uh, um, a svastika, a Horace Martian svastika, which I, I'll take his word for it, um, uh, growing out of that fifth square. Um, and he says, uh, oh yeah, so of course three is going to be um, Saturn for Bina, four is going to be Jupiter for Chesed, and five is going to be Mars. And so the um, the hypotenuse, hypotenuse, which faces the right angle, which is Mars, um, is going to be the Mars and I guess square of five He's referring units. to it as the the missing path, the secret path across the abyss. Yeah, he thinks there's a path across the abyss. That's super <laughs> important to him that there be a path across <laughs> the abyss. Um, uh, look here. He's almost quoting from the Book of the Law um, here. And forgive me, I haven't numbered these paragraphs, but I think this is in section four. Section four seems to be the last one I did before I went, yeah, before I went off the rails. Um, <laughs> but in section four, he says, he's talking about how in his new system, all the pips, one through nine. Thank you for joining us. The paths below to Ferrith. Then getting up to the supernal triad, you have the num the numbers in the tens place, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. And then uh, the, the hundreds place, uh, you just have the paths uh, 100, 200, 300, 400, which are all the, and that accounts for all the Hebrew letters. And he says uh, here, the first order is for those who must pass through fire. That's quote, That's roughly from the book of the law, right? The gross must pass through fire. Mm -hmm. He says the second order is to try those in intellect. Uh, and he says uh, the gross must pass through fire. The what is it in the book of the law? The gross must pass through the fire. Fine, let the fine let be the tried. Let the fine in be intellect. tried in intellect. And then the third one, he said, and the third order is for those who have coordinated the understanding. Oops, that's a problem. <laughs> in the book of the, so he says he correctly says pass through fire, um, correctly says tried in intellect, but then instead of the lofty chosen ones and the highest, he says coordinated their understanding. What do you think? It, what would you think it means to coordinate your understanding? Good question. Just, uh, <laughs> I think, I think just what he's doing here, organizing and cataloging, and, yeah. and laying out. Right. Very good point, actually, because uh, um, okay, I'm just going to throw this out there. I had you know my own personal insight years and years ago about the idea about the difference between knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Knowledge being a bunch of information. And some people have a lot of pride in gathering a bunch of information. Understanding is knowing the right kind of relationship for that information, so the right application for it and that sort of thing. And then wisdom is the next level beyond that. But it does sound like here he's describing understanding as being a coordinating faculty in that regard. However, it sounds a hell of a lot more like somebody speaking from the idea of knowledge, which is, I want to say, you had mentioned uh, in our previous discussion, it sounded a lot more like, as you put it, the demon C trying to keep him distracted. So it was a lot of information 
Yeah, and he's he's tried to cross the abyss and been confronted with all the information and thinks that the function of the ma- master of the temple is to t- take this information and coordinate his understanding, uh, uh, which is what he's his project is here to take to 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 organize the tree tree of life. But again, he can't justify any of it. No, n- there's no intellectual process going on. He's using oracles and inspirations and dreams and sort of passive illuminations. And he doesn't say, I'm willing to admit I was wrong when I see better evidence. He says, I'm willing to admit I was wrong when I receive more light. <laughs> exactly, that's true. And so, and so for him, the job of the master of the temple is to create big elaborate charts like Libra 777, which is not the way Crowley talks about it mm-hmm. at all. And he's he's constantly got this underlying ego that you can sense, but he's trying to be diversionary about being able to openly admit to it because he doesn't, you know, he's not confronting it. You can start to see where the Grant people come from and why they're so interested in Akkad. Mm-hmm. You know, where Frater Akkad, Osman Spare, these guys who are interested in chaos magic and basically sort of a quasi thalamic Satanism, incorporating the Lovecraft pantheon and all this stuff, uh, you can start to see why uh, they might find Akkad a inspiring. Hmm. Uh, but there's um, stuff in... The, the chapter of the Egyptian revival that we read that's more helpful in this regard. So I'm suggesting, I'm going to suggest we move on to chapter five of the Egyptian revival, which we also read because we thought it would be easier than trying to understand this appendix. <laughs> chapter five was the, uh, the only part that we were supposed to be reading, but, uh, it was very, I was glad that I attempted to read through the whole thing, even though I only got so far, but uh, to be able to catch that introduction to it where he's, you know, um, revealing a little bit of the fact that, yeah, he's human, all too human, after all. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you read that because I did too, and I, I don't know if I marked out any quotations to read from it, but I did think that it was... Um, really interesting. It put me on. It it made me feel less guilty about being distracted by the uh, Proto-Indo-European stuff because it helped me realize that you know that's a big part of of his project here, love it or hate it. That what he's trying to do is discover a a a primal system that inspires the uh, mm-hmm. the later one. There was a, especially at the time, I guess, it was a super common sort of idea to uh, that the Jews had taken these secrets out of Egypt, and so they were even older than um, biblical exegesis and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, so the idea being that they had evolved with the Jewish. Kabbalah, and then from there, Christian Kabbalah in the uh, Renaissance made it into a a more modern and updated thing. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of questions about who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was, and sometimes it's uh, been Akhenaten. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's been thought to be Akhenaten was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, because Akhenaten, even though he wasn't really a monotheist, uh, he just kind of hated Amun-Ra. Hmm. Um, but he's famously a monotheist because he exalts the uh, the Aten, the sun disk, above all the other gods. And so he's thought to have inspired Moses' monotheism. And so that so if he's the pharaoh of the Exodus, then there's Moses carrying the secrets of Egyptian magic 
out of Egypt along with this new idea of monotheism. Yeah. Um, uh, people sometimes think that's very important. Um, and I, this is like a mainstream thing that that was uh, thought of as very important. So that just goes to show this is like a this is a very human thing to to latch onto these ideas. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure if you went back in time, it'd be a lot less interesting, or it would look different in perspective from from that time than it does to us now. Yeah, I think it's sometimes been thought that there were no there were never Jews in Egypt at all and some of the stuff that I've been listening to now seems to contradict that so I don't know for sure mm-hmm. and but I think the um the story of the exodus is actually something about the relationship of the Jews to Babylon and uh Nebuchadnezzar and something it's like a, a way of creating a story that inspires you know, people, but it also incorporates, uh, but the, but the relationship between, you know, Egyptian stories and Semitic, Semitic stories and, and Babylonian stories and things like that, this is all, you know, inspired from something deeper in a shared history rather than being cross-cultural necessarily. Mm-hmm. It seems that, uh, any dogma doesn't tell you much about the truth. It just tells you about you. Um, if we're, uh, we're on sort of a, a tangent here between dealing with two different texts. Another thing I wanted to talk about today, uh, was this idea that, um, Achad took the oath of the abyss as a neophyte, mm. uh, which we, we sort of talked about a little bit last time as well, but I think we're kind of armed now that we've read a few of these texts to make some educated guesses about it. So I was looking at the Wikipedia article, which the first sentence of that is, Achad took the oath of the Abyss as a neophyte. Um, then there's uh, something called Thelemopedia, and the first sentence of that, Achad took the oath of the Abyss as a neophyte. His uh, Abe Books biography <laughs> says the same thing. Um, and so it seems like it's well attested in the tertiary sources, at least. That are all referencing back to the Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, that's, that's right. But if you read them, it's, it's actually that there's a five-paragraph biography that someone's written at some point that's been mm. copy and pasted into all those places. And because I'm not very web savvy, I wasn't able to find out who this, the author <laughs> of this uh, biography was or what his sources were. And the same biography also says that Parzival was both Achad's name in the OTO and his Adeptus Minor monocle. Mm. So you can't you can't take the Oath of the Abyss as a neophyte if you've already claimed the grade of Adeptus Minor. <laughs> uh, and so um, I thought that it would be worth just looking at what's published, because we don't have access to things that haven't been published. But what's published shows Crowley setting a... Zealotur exam. So he's finished. He's finishing neophyte. So it's basically is his neophyte exam, I guess, going to the grade of, of Zealotur. Crowley setting Jones an exam for the grade of Zealotur, um, December thirty first, nineteen thirteen, and it's a hard exam. And certainly, I've set exams for people who've never done them. You know, in various orders and stuff, people drop out at all the time for all sorts of reasons. And if they don't drop out, sometimes they have life stuff that takes them away. But people certainly don't always do the work they're assigned. But then here in Libra 31, Jones talks about June 21st, 1916, as the day he took the oath of the abyss. So two and a half years. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And certainly you can do nothing in two and a half years, so he might still be a neophyte. But I think it's unlikely that Crowley, as his direct supervisor, would have accepted that he'd crossed the abyss if he knew he'd never evaluated that exam. Mm-hmm. If he just so, dropped off. So I think nothing. we have to assume he's at least a zealoter. And if the biography that says he crossed the Oath of the Abyss is a neophyte, I mean, we already have agree that that's a dubious source. But if it's true that Parseval is is a handle as an adeptus minor, I think we can suppose that in two and a half years he might have been able to finish Zelliter, basically do his nine two three eight four seven and five six. It would be super fast. If he, if he did make Adeptus Minor, he's going like this, right? Because mm. the ritual takes about six months as published by Mathers. And then there's a version of the ritual that takes three months in The Vision and the Voice, which we know Jones has. So maybe he whipped through those next three grades and did a three-month version of the Adeptus Minor ritual and got his Adeptus Minor. I think if he was an Adeptus Minor, it would be much more likely that Crowley would accept his claim to Master of the Temple, Mm -hmm. especially if he'd been working that quickly. But it is really fast. So maybe we can say it's unlikely that he was an Adeptus Minor, but it's almost certain he was uh, at least a zealoter. So he wasn't merely an... And this is... I, I wonder if it's just a matter of the fact that there's a tendency to refer to someone as a neophyte when they become a neophyte and anything beyond that you know that they're a neophyte so that's how they get referred to well you also wear the robe of your neo uh, of is it you wear the robe of neophyte or you wear the robe of zealotor i think you wear the robe of neophyte when you're doing your five six mm-hmm. when you're doing um but uh that's neither here nor there anyway the, the point is i think we i think we have to say we don't know what Akkad's career looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there, somewhere I read that Master of the Temple was supposed to be kind of a book one of many published diaries that were going to detail mm-hmm. Akkad's career. Um, it doesn't say that anywhere in the preface to Master of the Temple that I can find in any of Crowley's writing, but that's that's another dubious rumor that I heard. So I think we just can't say we know what Jones's career looks like mm-hmm. and that it's kind of arbitrary to say... You know, until we can figure out this, who wrote this Wikipedia article and asked them to say that he he took the oath of the abyss as a neophyte. His I, career is just a convention. You don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I yeah I, yeah I think Crowley at least maybe what happened is that Crowley got that exam, passed him to uh, to Zelliter, and then passed him on to another supervisor for the rest of his grades, and didn't didn't keep up with his career until he got the telegram about the babe of the abyss and just assumed that it was correct because some of the things that he was saying seemed true hmm. uh so um uh or 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 you know because it doesn't even it's not even clear to me that diaries exist from jones's crossing. yeah it would be really nice to get letter correspondences between crowley and ahad because i feel like that would be the most illuminating place to look like you say, diary entries uh, didn't look that promising based on Lieber 31. Uh, his diary keeping may have been much better than we had been given an impression of. But uh, Yeah, because he both claims that the complete record is extant in another place and that no record was ever written. Yeah, so he, I, he didn't feel impressed <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to write it until Sunday came around. Anyway, it it seems like, you know, without making any claim to have any background in history or any histor- any real historical tools at my disposal, 
we, we at least have the ability to read things and understand what they say. Hmm. And having gone through a bunch of this, uh, you know, to the, 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 what did you say, 25 people, 100 people that, that, down, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that uh, download this in a, in a given month and actually listen to it, I thought it would be... Uh, maybe helpful to know. Yeah, it's nice to bring some of these things together because a lot of it's dispersed. You might find uh, more information, but it may be in, in like uh, footnotes throughout different publications yeah. and, and whatnot. So a little tricky to bring everything together in one place. It's helpful to have some clarity on what we think we know and what we think we don't know. Yeah. 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 Love is the law. Love under will. Watch for part two of our discussion on Akkad's changes to the tree. Look for Toronto Thalima on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. The first year of school, I just mean, I just like feel totally at sea. I guess it'll be better once I get my... Once I see the transcript, then I know that I passed every, yeah, everything. Really. I'll feel more settled. But um, do you feel pretty confident that it went well? Uh, yeah, I think so. I th- um, I think I was going to pass everything anyway, but I think the uh, finals went okay. So I think I'm going to get not bad grades on top of it. So well, that's good. Tell me yeah. about your relationship with your parents. Holy smokes! <laughs> 